Alright, here we go. Um, I have my level set. Oh, whatever, I don't care. How you doing, Jay? <laughs> I'm excited, Jack. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm a little nervous. Oh, yeah. It's going to sure. be alright. It's going to be alright. What is the episode that we've done that you felt most nervous about potentially, not you, but us, misconstruing the author's intended purpose? I don't know. Capital, Every time we start, capital, yeah. <laughs> Silly question, capital. Um, Dan, how you doing? It's a beautiful sunny day. It's, it's a balmy day. Summer's, yeah, it's balmy. It's, it's for very sure. warm. It's very warm. Yeah. yeah. Um, the promise in at least another week. Yeah, well, at least. Maybe it was the best of this week. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> I think it's going to rain Friday. But anyways. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, Dan. Cool 400-year-old buildings are very neat. Yeah. Not much ventilation circulation. They get hot. I'll tell you that right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Very hot. Um, but yeah, uh-huh. another beautiful day uh-huh. in the south uh-huh. of England. Here I mean, I live in a 450-year-old building. <laughs> yeah, and true. it's incredibly cool in the downstairs of my house. <laughs> and upstairs. Yeah, it's cool. It's mm-hmm. quite a cool house, actually. It's quite a cool house. See, it's that third floor. Here. Yeah. It's, that's what it is. Yeah, it's yeah. That, you're basically, heat. you're living in an attic. <laughs> exactly. I'm literally like no in insulation attic. between. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, my plants like it, I think. I've just realized that I think <laughs> I think my leeks are in too small of a container because they've just they've plateaued. They've stopped growing for about two weeks. So. Okay. Whatever. Leeks. What are you going to do? You need to plant them out. Either plant them out. Yeah, I don't know. Does anything eat leeks? I don't know. You've got a pest problem at the moment. Oh, have God, you no kidding. All sorts of pests. I got slugs. I got pigeons. I've eaten all my damn Brussels sprouts. Um, foxes. Foxes. That's the biggest problem. They're back. After last week, I was like, we solved it. Foxes, we're on peace terms now. Now we're not. Now it's mm-hmm. back to war. Um, so if you know any foxes, tell them to stay away from my allotment. That's all, that's all I know. What are you going to do? Pests. Uh-huh. I've got a massive snug and, slug and snail problem. Oh, yeah. So that's going to need to be fixed. Yeah. I don't know what the, I don't know what to do. If you don't want to kill them, like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. It's just like... Get ducks, I guess. I mean, then you're going to kill them, but I think ducks is the answer. We've got a we've got a hedgehog that visits our garden, but we've got raised beds, and we were discussing, discussing uh, the other day whether they whether the hedgehog <laughs> might go up some kind of ramp. If we constructed a ramp into the raised bed, whether it would go up there and eat. They could do like themselves. a hamster wheel for it, a hedgehog. Yeah, hamster yeah, wheel. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> build it, I just need to build it a little house in the corner of the bed, don't I? <laughs> Yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. I think the hedgehog here is gone. I think it's it's off. It's it's like too much is going on. It was, I here. was very pleased to see that ours had returned. It was hanging around mm. last year and we hadn't seen it. So do they hibernate? Do I you guess think? they must. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. Good for them. Good mm. for the hedgehogs. Mm. Pests that we like. So I guess not pests. Um, critters. Critters. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. a big difference. Yeah. Mm. We just gathered all the slugs and snails up. And took them across the road and put them in... Wait a minute, across the road? <laughs> Wait a minute. Tip them into Jack's bed. Yeah, exactly. That's what's been eating all my stuff. <laughs> Usually when I find a big slug at the allotment, I just pick it up and just throw it. I'm just like, yeah. so you're going to land where you're going to land. Sorry. I just assume they'll be fine. They'll be fine. Yeah. They're squishy. What's the worst that <laughs> yeah. So yeah, need to solve that problem. Mm. Diatomaceous earth, I've heard. Putting it around the stems of your plants, like that white. There's plenty of it around here, I think. Um, it's like made from like a compression of like Dead Sea stuff, but it's just like chalky and white. It just looks like chalk, but on like a microscopic level, it's very sharp. And so like slugs go over it and they go, oh, and they oh okay. That's what I've heard. So maybe order some of that. I have to find oh. some of that. Mm. Yeah. Um, or I can just keep yeeting them into next door. <laughs> or keep doing that. Get a little. Get a little caterpillar. Uh, a uh, catapult. That was hard to say. Jeez. A caterpillar. You don't pole. mean a catapult. A catapult. A slug catapult. A slug catapult. Oh my God, I do. Jesus. 
<laughs> it's a slug catapult, catapult made of caterpillars. <laughs> a slug trebuchet. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, Jack. So, Dan. Really quickly, should we just say thank you again to Thelma Walker? Yeah. Because that episode rocked. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Thank yeah, you for you... everybody who yeah. listened to it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for everybody who sent such kind feedback. Thank you to our new listeners, because I know we've gotten some. Um, hopefully you've stuck around. Um, hello. <laughs> welcome. Most of you are probably from the north. I was just there. It's beautiful. So welcome, everybody. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yes. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, go watch the video. It's on our YouTube channel. Plug. Uh, Dan. So, okay, Dan, a while ago, longtime listeners will know that I was teasing a book called The Book that turned out to be The Devil's Chessboard by David Talbot, CIA History. Kind of also been semi-teasing another book, and that is the book that we're reading the first four chapters of today and the first three forwards, <laughs> technically. Um, we're finally getting to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm it's, stoked. It's 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 the new must read. Yeah, everybody's new, doing it. The new the new um, the I want to say tome, but actually it's incredibly digestible. <laughs> it it's incredibly easy to read Large and very text. clear. <laughs> Who knew this has been hanging around for the past ninety <laughs> five years? Yeah. Uh, I mean, somebody knew, clearly. Yeah. The Dutch. Um, 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 so, yes, the new must-read, the new hot thing <laughs> in the very small circles of internet socialist-slash-communist podcasts. <laughs> what are we reading, Jack? Why don't you tell me what we're reading? Dan, what are we... No, we are uh, the proud owners of two <laughs> copies of... They're here. We're looking at them. Two copies of, drumroll, the fundamental principles... The elegantly named, I will say, fundamental principles of communist production and distribution by the group of international communists. I think pretty much mainly just written by one guy, but put out by the group of international communists. Um, Council communists, question mark? Perhaps? So we're back on it. It didn't take (laughs) long. We're back on it. We're back on the council communism. Yeah. They are definitely council communists. Mm. Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I tell you, it's... This is a brand new translation of the, the second edition from 1935, mm. recently translated and published last year or the year before. Oh. So, um, yeah, go check it out. Um, also, like, stop listening to this and like go <laughs> go and listen to the 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 episodes of Swampside Chats that Tom <laughs> O'Brien featured on, where they discussed this. Actually, I think it was a collaboration between those two podcasts, Swampside <laughs> Chats and From Alpha to Omega, and they talked about this in great detail. So, yeah, go listen to that. But also listen to our ramblings. Put this on mute in the background. Yeah. (laughs) Or you could listen to both at the same time. That would be awful. Um, (laughs) But yes, you could do that. Um, So, okay, back on the council communist kick. And I think I'm figuring these people out a little bit. Um, Because initially... Okay, so first of all, this book is exactly what it says to be. It, it claims to be the fundamental principles of how a communist society would organize its production and uh, distribute those goods. Mm-hmm. Um, so we said I'm going to try not say commodity, but if I do, so I mean product. <laughs> um, and it's, it's really it's, – okay, first of all, it rocks. Let's just get that out there. This book is amazing. It's written in such a really easy-to-understand style. It's uh, whenever it wants you to really notice something, it's all in bold with five exclamation points and it's underlined and in italics. It does that a lot, which I find very, very good. Um, but to me, this just kind of seems like, you know, as Dan and I are, people who have read the first chapter of Capital, we'll have you know, this seems to just be like – really just kind of taking the next logical steps of applying Marx's and Engels's actual um, economic thought 
You think do you think that's crazy? Because I mean, you know, perhaps not uh, political thought. We might get to that later, but economic thought, productive, distributive. I think yeah, it seems pretty close to the uh, source material. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it might even be quite close to the the political thought of Marx and Engels, such that it existed, mm. um, at least in terms of like the 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 commitment to the autonomous activity of the working class over um, sort of formal institution or mm. or in sort of intellectuals or the commitment to socialism from below as opposed to socialism opposed from above as we read about two weeks ago when we talked about Hal Draper yeah we also did the Draper <laughs> um but yeah it makes you ask the question what the hell happened in the meantime <laughs> yeah, yeah no kidding but I mean this book actually does sort of chart that chart some aspects of that history um the various efforts to um revise Marxism and the efforts to um I wouldn't, don't want to say subvert, but to sort of overlook mm. some of the quite overt things that Marx and Engels said about what socialism and communism would be and mm. uh, the effort that was made by um, disciples of theirs to, yes, as I say, overlook certain of those um, those mm. clear commitments. Mm. Um, and yeah, just like our last interaction with Council of Communism, it's an instance of everybody else is wrong. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> this is definitely an instance of that. Um, um and I think they're they're probably right, and uh, it's yeah. it's so it's it's some it's um a I mean, <laughs> given as I say, it's like a ninety five year old book. It's an <laughs> incredibly refreshing. Well, then and now, I would imagine an incredibly refreshing, um, just resetting of the scene. I suppose. Mm. I mean, a little bit like what I was saying about Hal Draper two weeks ago, where it sort of casts certain things in a totally different light, like laying a different conceptual framework over things. Um, this similarly is pointing at very, quite a number of ways in which like both uh, this, we're talking about like um, turn of the century socialist movements. I mean, this was written in 35, but mm. it's incredibly influenced by, I suppose the first decade, the first 15 years of uh, the Soviet experience and then also like the preceding two decades of the the beginning of the 20th century, um, the the intellectual and the political developments both. But I mean, basically, um, that were defined by the experience of social democracy, basically German social democracy mm. that was sort of uh, cast such a large shadow over all of European uh, socialist thought uh, in that period of time kind of thing so this is basically a direct response to that sort of first 30 year history of the 20th century particularly as it pertained to uh, socialist both intellectual thought but also the actual advancement of um, socialist ideas on a political mm. scale political prescient too for when Pre I was written prescient for then yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. I mean prescient yeah. for now damn yeah um yeah, so I mean, it's I, I think we're we're getting close, Dan, to finding what socialism <laughs> is with this book. Um, and I'm going to start us off just by hitting hitting everybody with a quote, if I may. So, I suppose maybe to frame this a bit, they basically we were talking about this right before we started recording. This book is about the distribution and production that would happen that would need to take place for a society to be communist. It's not really about much else. So to start this quote off, they say. So this book can never replace the class struggle. 
It only wants to express economically what will happen politically. For this, it was necessary not to take the abolition of private property and means of production as a starting point, but the abolition of wage labor. All thoughts are based around this. And our research leads us to the conclusion that the workers who come to power in mass movements can only hold this political power if they abolish wage labor in economic life by taking working time as the central axis around which economic life moves. That's basically what we've read so far in a nutshell. <laughs> and we'll get to the last bit about um, uh, working time is the central axis for everything. But just to say, Dan, the version of communism that they're outlining, at the, it's like bizarro capitalism in that it's like everything is different, but there are so many mirror forms that are exactly, I mean, obviously not exactly, but they're so similar. Um, and I mean, to take their first point first, I guess, um, they're not they're saying that communism isn't just when we abolish private property. Communism has to be and is and will be when we get rid of wage labor. And that that I think was I did a little annotation next to that the first time I read it, which was just a little man with his mind being blown. Because it's <laughs> like they I mean, you know, they're council communists, so they're gonna say everything else is state capitalism that's been done. But they're backing that up with like this really clear and to me, like, awesome point about why that is and why everything that's been tried has been state capitalism. Because everything that has been tried has led to workers more or less selling their labor on a market. And whether that's the Soviets trying to make things, uh, you know, like a, an economy in kind or whether it's uh, just another kind of just blatant market socialism, you can't have communism. You can't have people actually be liberated until you uh, make this kind of equivalent exchange which there isn't under capitalism of labor and what you get from society. Because there's, and I was telling you right before that I kind of think about this, it's like almost like a bit of metabolic rift because it's like the energy that you're putting into the system, into society through your labor is not the same as you're getting out of it. What you're getting is a wage, which is, you know, basically like, go listen to our episodes on capital for why that's not exactly what you're getting out of it. But the whole point of this book is to write that wrong and to make it so that what you're putting into society is exactly what you're getting out of it. And when they explain that, I was just like, it's, yeah, it rocks. It's so, so, so cool. And it is, it all just comes down to getting rid of wage labor, but to tie it all up again, um, what they kind of wind up replacing it with is something that looks a lot like, perhaps, I might get hassled for saying this, but like kind of like a wage, even though you're not getting paid for your concrete labor, et cetera, et cetera, you're not being exploited. It has these interesting mirror forms, which is, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, that I mean... They are um, sweet, sweepingly radical, mm. as one would have to be if one were proposing a total change in the mode of production, which is what they are doing. But it feels like a very surgical and a very clinical, mm. like, sort of cutting away of everything that is clearly and purely capitalist. But at the same time, um, it's reminiscent of, like... I mean, to me, like, obviously, like, my total, my <laughs> my mind always goes to what we've read about the transition from feudalism to capitalism. Okay. <laughs> always, always. Who, and, who wrote that book again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Go back and listen to episodes three and four on the origins of capitalism. Uh, a book Wood. written by Ellen Meeks' Wood. Um, uh, elaborating on the theories of Robert Brenner. Mm. Um other theories of the translation are available <laughs> if one wants to go and read them nah, don't worry. <laughs> we keep promising that we might or i keep telling myself that maybe we ought to interact with some more of this theory but 
It's we not, figured it out. It's not happened yet. It's not is happened it so far. I'm so convinced it was England. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're so keen to dislike England. <laughs> Syphilitic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the point being that, um, like, tr- like, transitions between modes of production are incredibly um, stark shifts. That are almost possible to miss if you blink. Mm. Like it feels like. I mean, it, I mean, this is this is this is this is not quite. I mean, there's there's a piece of there's a there's a there's a thing that's been going over and over in my mind, in our minds, in the sort of collective consciousness of the podcast <laughs> um, over all of these episodes, which is this idea that like uh, modes of production change when there is some kind of class struggle where people are basically just trying to maintain their. So continue to survive in their current arrangement, but the the back and forth of the class struggle actually leads to this un, in, unintentional change kind of thing. Well, that's not quite what is being described here, but you can indeed see aspects of this whereby um, things, certain things, continue in a very recognizable form. That's a great point. In this new mode of production, mm. and it's worth pointing out that what they're what they're describing here is. Um, a sort of staged transition. Like we all know quite a lot of things about what communism is meant to be. I mean, there, I mean, obviously, there's the the famous phrase about um, from each according to their ability and to each according to their need. In, in this book, and also in Marx's analysis, like that is a feature of a much later, much more mature and developed socialism, communism. I'm just gonna. We, we ought to commit to some terminology. I suppose we ought communism. to commit to communism as the piece of the terminology because the book says communism. Book says communism. But um, if I do accidentally say socialism or commodity, when I get when, well, let's forget that for a minute. If I do accidentally say socialism because I'm a bit worried about saying communism, I basically mean the same thing. Mm. So there's cards on the table. <laughs> um, this is a, tr- a theory of transition where there are stages, much like the pro- much like the transition to capitalism, right? Like the transition to capitalism didn't they weren't they weren't I mean they probably were, but like there was a period of history where there was capitalism, but there wasn't wage labor. Mm. So something that we we clearly now we hear was is a fundamental feature of the capitalist mode of production: wage labor, which needs to be abolished wasn't there from the outset kind of thing so obviously modes of production are defined decided are defined by certain characteristics but they do evolve over time and mm. the same will be true of communism there will be a gradual evolution into a more mature form of what that is mm. here what we're talking about is the very early stages of the transition to a sort of like that's sort of lower stage communism, yeah. I guess the correct piece of uh, yeah. terminology. Yeah. Um, <laughs> can I can I just yeah, stop please. you for a sec, just because I want to take it back to something you said about you 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 just said this, and you also said it right before we started recording about um, uh, this and the councilists in general as being more radical economically, at least than um, say like Bolsheviks or. Um, or anybody like that. And I, I hadn't thought about that before. I think less radical. Or less radical. Yeah, 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 yeah. Less Sorry, radical. less radical. And I hadn't thought of that because immediately I, like, you know, I hear councilists and I'm just like, damn, they're probably like lefties. Yeah, yeah, these left comms. <laughs> these goddamn left comms. Um, but it, you're absolutely right. It is it is less radical. But at the same time, again, like it's it's almost more radical because it's like, 
okay, guys, we're not just going to do <laughs> it's a radical crazy... by virtue of its practicality. <laughs> exactly. It's not, like we're not just going to do crazy uh, economy and kind stuff here. We're not going to go that far. It's way more simple than that. Like, don't don't uh, uh, get your uh, socks in the knot or whatever. Like, the answers are basically in capitalism. And that sounds like something that, like, if I were to hear someone say that, it'd be like, don't ever listen to this person again. But, like, they're, it's it's absolutely true. Because it's like, just by shifting this thing, which is replacing wage labor with uh, some sort of system based around socially necessary labor time or, uh, or whatever, um, you, you, you get this massive shift. Because you're just not being exploited, or at least not being exploited as much, because we'll get to kind of why it's not like a perfect one to one ratio what you put into what you get out. But like, you're right, it is less radical, but it leads to just like ex- something exponentially more communist. Air quotes. No, not air quotes. No air quotes there. Then, say, economy and kind. It's it's mind boggling, and you're absolutely right. I, I yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the, the Soviet, in, in the narrative of this book, the Soviet alternative to that process as you say the sort of like uh trade of goods in kind mm. which we'll come on to defining in a minute i hope would imagine <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh in the narrative of this book as i say like collapsed within 18 months and two years and if you believe that the soviet union was operating some kind of version of capitalism then capitalism in some form reinstituted itself almost immediately in the soviet union because yeah. their effort was so uh catastrophically yeah focused on private property and focused in on private property instead of on wage labor which they're like sure yeah 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 yeah. should we talk about what what they mean by wage labor or what they yeah yeah yeah, intend because like you were right to talk about um, exploitation and domination like they start they start with the very basics of marxism right Mm. at the beginning of chapter one um after an obligatory reference to like councils and how great councils are because obviously they're councils are great um they then get on to their second great love, which is Karl Marx. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, like the, 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 some like basic Marxism one hundred and one, like um, capitalism form. Of, capitalism is a form of class society whereby one class exploits the labor of another class. Mm. Um, privileged ownership of means of production. Um, capitalists maintain. A relationship of domination with workers whereby they do not remunerate them fully for the work that they do but only pay them uh, a small quantity of the value that they create for the capitalists i.e the capitalists take the majority of the the product and uh the wage laborers are left that wage laborers are left only with their wage mm. um, enough to basically reproduce yourself yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah um and i suppose it's worth remembering that like in wage labor, like laborers sell their ability to work to a capitalist. Mm. Just like any commodity, the, cap- the capitalist buys a certain amount of labor in the form of sort of like hours of work from workers mm. and sort of combines that with the means of production that he already owns and makes commodities <laughs> and therefore sells those commodities for a profit on the market. And uh, the, the workers are left only with their meager wage. Um, so obviously the beginning of this criticism is where one that would say the problem is private ownership of means of production and much, I mean, much like 
uh, much like the Social Democrats of this era, much like the Bolsheviks, who they basically just recall to refer to as the radical Social Democrats in brackets Bolsheviks, which is um, which is an apt an apt title, I think. Um, they all they they would all obviously agree that um, the basis for overcoming capitalism is the abolition of private property. Hmm. Um, but what 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 the 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 system of wage labor, the system of um, basically the system of bondage in which workers are kept under capitalism, it separates them from means of production, which under other modes of production they may have owned themselves, they now don't own. But also the process, the, the relationship of wage labor remunerates them with a wage that is paid for their ability to work. And they're in that process separated from any right to determine or dictate what happens to the things that they produce. So wage laborers under capitalism are not only separated from means of production, they're also separated from the product. Mm. Um, and so basically, it feels like the crux of their argument is that it's not good enough just to go after private ownership of the means of production, but it's also you've got to go after anything that isn't socially mediated and determined um, distribution of the products, what they call that the right to disposal of the products. Mm. The products of production have to be owned and controlled uh, and their fate, I suppose, decided upon by the workers, <laughs> not by the capitalists. Um, and so you get from this a particular critique of like, the Soviet Union and what people come, have come to think of as uh, communist societies, I suppose. Mm. And I mean, yeah, obviously they make the point where they're like, it's not, since we have social division of labor, it's not really actually possible for you to have the actual literal right yeah. to dispose of every product that you make. And we'll get around to kind of like, it was only on my second time reading through it, we should say, we only read the first four chapters. We, <laughs> um, the first, my, the, it was only until the second time reading through this that I realized how the right of disposal connects to this new system that they're talking about. Before we get to that, I'm just going to read a little bit more about wage labor kind of before we move on from it, because this is yeah. a really important point about wage labor being the thing. Private property, bad. Wage labor, very bad. So they say, the peculiarity of the amount of work we give to society has nothing to do with the wages. Uh, there's some of this translation, which is a little hard to get through, so if I stumble, my apologies. Which we give to society has nothing to do with the wages, which is much more important than the question of distribution alone. This means that the wage worker has nothing to do with the social product. I'm going to skip forward a little bit. The value of the labor force is the bearer of all of these conflicts. This is because our work does not determine our relationship to the social product. Exclamation point. The workers, who believe that a communist revolution is only about the passing of the surplus value onto the owners of the state, are therefore deeply mistaken. Skipping forward a little bit more. For the wage workers, therefore, the goal of the new proletarian revolution can only be to establish a new relationship between the producer and the social product. And then uh, in all bold with exclamation points, abolition of wage labor, work is the measure of consumption. So it's exactly what you're saying. It's you can't just say state do things, take away everything from capitalists. There we did it. No more private property. This is communism because there you still just have workers being exploited. Um this is what a lot of the counselors that we've been reading recently have gotten to without getting into the kind of like scientific detail of it, which they kind of do here, which is, uh, you know, they just basically say, eh, that was state capitalism, don't worry about it. But here they're giving you an actual reasonable uh, reason for why 
not state capitalism, which I think they would say, just not communism. And that's the wage labor. You know, you, it doesn't really matter, like, if you're setting things up like the Soviets did. If, if you're still trading your labor and there's, you're, you're getting less than what you put into it, that's not communism. Mm. And again, we'll get on to what this, you know, the uh, way that they get around this is, but it's like, looks a lot like what we have now, which is, yeah, again, crazy. Yeah, yeah, their argument is in the Soviet Union, um, people were still paid a wage. Mm. They still didn't have the right to dispose of the goods that they produced. And that by virtue of that fact, the state was therefore buying labor in the way that the capitalists used to buy labor. There continued to be uh, a market in the value of labor kind of thing. Labor continues as a commodity in the way that it exists under capitalism. Um which uh, undermines the whole project, I suppose, if you're maintaining such a key feature of capitalism um, um, in your com supposedly communist system. And they do outline in some detail that we probably won't go into, like some of the sort of uh, social aspects of the social discord that was sown in the Soviet Union in terms of like the wrangling between the state <laughs> and the, and the uh, supposed official trade unions and quite what the value of the labor was going to be and therefore of course like if the state is interested in um creating surpluses in the same way that a capitalist was interested in creating surpluses then the state is therefore interested in exploiting the labor of workers in a way that the capitalist under uh, the capitalist mode of production was interested in exploiting the labor of workers kind of thing mm. uh, so there's the the basic relationship of the wage relation the basic relationship that dictates um, the key features of wage labor, I suppose, is maintained in in your supposedly socialist communist system. Mm, yeah, supposedly. <laughs> Speaking of supposed communists, Dan, we've talked about our friends, the Soviets, unless there's anything else you want to say on them for now. Um, I was just going to talk about our friends, perhaps anarchists. Uh -huh. um, so a large point of these first four chapters is basically saying you can't think about federalization, centralization, any of these questions without first talking about the organization of the economic unit, without thinking of the organization of your productive apparatuses and your distribution, blah, 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 blah. They say you can't really think about that until you get to, until you answer these questions. Um, and basically, they're really making the point here that like, again, once again, you can't, we've bought this up on our previous council list episodes, but like you can't try and live in a society at the same time be free from it. And so their main point here is that there needs to be one binding uh, rule. There needs to be rules that all producers follow. Um, and these aren't like, you know, like iron fisted, like bureaucratic, like you must produce everything like this. You must do it all like this. This is just an economic law that everybody follows. Um, and this is the idea of basically... Uh, doing everything around the basic unit of socially average, the socially average working hour. Um, so this is something that I hope I don't botch, but this is something that we've talked about a bit in our capital episodes, which is basically the difference between your concrete labor, which is the labor that you yourself as a person do when you go to work, and the uh, socially average labor, basically, which is like Say you make a chair, you make chairs for a living. It's the average amount of time that takes everybody to make a similar type of chair. Um, and that's, that's the binding economic unit, the law, 
um, that they're talking about. Because I think if you were to confront a lot of people and you were to say, you know, well, get rid of wage labor, get rid of markets, get rid of all this stuff, they might be like, this it seems pretty insane. Nothing's going to regulate itself at all. But they're saying that this is the way that you regulate everything. So at the same time, it's exactly what you were saying earlier about like this is less radical than just like either the in-kind Soviet model or the like no rules producers do whatever, literally whatever you want. They're like, there needs to be one basis, one unit that everybody follows. And it's this idea of the socially average working hour. Um, so again, Dan, the council, the council is coming through. I always, I, oh, I keep expecting them to just be like loony, like, here we go. All right. Yeah. All right. This is going to be close to close to anarchism. But yeah, once again, they come through with like an actual, or at least these people do they come through with an actual, like, no guys, we got to organize stuff. We got to, you know, have some rules if we're going to have a society. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's coming back to this idea. I mean, you 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 allude to it, obviously, that um, there are there are it's weird kind of mirror universe parallels between <laughs> capitalism and communism as be, as it's being uh, advocated for us here. And I suppose it, 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 if there is in people's minds this idea that like this might almost be like utopian thinking you know this is like so far out there how could you even imagine like implementing this kind of a system like capitalism is a is a is a self-regulating system right like i mean it's it's an incredibly inefficient one <laughs> in a lot of respects it causes a great deal of crises mm. it uh creates huge maldistributions uh, blah 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 blah. Add, add whatever critique. Add critique. Whatever critique of capitalism you want to want you you want to put in. Um, but it does regulate itself. It does function. Um, production happens. Distribution happens. Consumption happens. Um, all that's been proposed here is you tweak the regulating, almost self-regulating features of. Mm capitalism into an into a new mode of production kind of thing um and as you say yeah the the the, the, the um they measure they intend to use is the the well the socially necessary labor time mm. they intend simply to uh measure the amount of time that it takes to create any product and then um price those products when they come to be consumed by people in labor hours it's an interesting point that they're making where whereby again like if you think of this this dichotomy between um private versus social ownership of the means of production and private versus social control of the um right i would say again like rights of disposal over the product but basically mm. like control of what happened to the product kind of thing you you have this existing binary between the two um and the same thing as they're saying like people's labor when they go to work when they work in production is measured in time in labor hours in what 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 you service what service you do to society and the only way that you can equally remunerate people is to have uh to be remunerated by an equal quantity of socially useful labor mm. i suppose um Obviously, capitalism is a social system. Like we've talked about this, like well, when we talked about commodity specialism in in capitalism, like um, 
we experience the commodities as bearing the value that we think that they do, but really it's just a representation of all of the social activity that's gone into putting that thing in front of us on the shop shelves or more often <laughs> in that in the in the the Amazon web store kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going boomer <laughs> <laughs> in the amazon store. Uh, <laughs> well you're right it removes commodity um, so, fetishism yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah uh, <laughs> i don't know i mean yeah so 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 um one cannot one cannot work one's own means of production and have a right to uh to own whatever that that one produces with your personal means of production the means of production are going to have to be socialized and you're going to have to take from the social stock what is due to you based on what you've put in and this is a way of regulating that process of um ensuring that people take out what they put in kind of thing not necessarily for some kind of like moralistic principle but based on the principle that you're going to have to have some kind of regulatory mechanism for how your economic system is going to work mm. you can't just like do without a regulatory mechanism that ha includes within it sort of like a feedback mechanism like um the the realms of production and the realms of consumption have to be mirrored or you're not going to produce the requisite quantity of things that people want to consume kind of thing mm. um so yeah <laughs> i don't know whether that no but, yeah but i mean like we could we could um i mean the 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 opposite of this is what we've been referring to as remuneration in kind, right? Which is what the what the Soviet Union tried, and um, what this book suggests. The Soviet Union's experiment in this kind of economic organization and planning was the death knell of that very form of economic <laughs> yeah. organization and planning. Oops. Although they do say that this what this wasn't something that was purely um, a fault of the 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 Bolsheviks and the Soviet Union, like they were drawing on commonly understood economic wisdom both of uh all of the mainstream wings of like european social democracy and they also love the anarchism as well with this as having this basic understanding of communism being um you you don't have some kind of unit of remuneration but rather you just trade goods so like um one fa factory produces one thing and they receive all of their um all of the all of the materials they need to do their mode of their piece of production and they pass on their what they've produced onto the next factory without there being any kind of like um accounting mechanism going on between these uh these various sort of uh firms. units of the economy like mm. firms kind of thing mm. Which we, I mean, went went sort of like uh, haywire. Went quite haywire in the Soviet <laughs> Union, um, which this book book puts down to a basic flaw in that. Well, they, they're quite stark in the terms that they use. That I don't know whether they call it like moronic or stupid or like, but they're just like, who would think of doing anything as stupid as trying to run an economy without a, a unit of accounting? Is the yeah. phrase that they use, but like. Uh, some mechanism for uh accounting yeah yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> some amount of bookkeeping needs to go on yeah um and rather what the soviet union did was thought that they could just dictate production based from some kind of like uh central um 
bureaucratic office, I suppose, based upon a sort of centrally determined and decided upon plan kind of thing. Um, but this this is another example of the two realms being separated, right? Like you you have a body, a central body trying to decide what people are going to want and they're telling production what to produce with no real way of actually confirming uh, whether these are the right quantities of things to be producing or... Uh, that kind of thing so like yeah. it's just the the intricacies of planning at this period of time were so extremely difficult i suppose um that, I suppose. that, that far better in yeah yeah i don't know do you want to uh, yeah i wonder i mean i have no idea it's when when i first came across this idea of like everybody calculating labor time which we should say is a vital vital aspect of this uh the, of communism as as they say every firm has to report how much time it's taking to create a product so you can get the average time that it takes across society. When I first came across that, I was like, Jesus Christ, that sounds complicated. But then we, you know, we started talking about it and it's like, well, it actually isn't that complicated. And I mean, it's made exponentially easier with computers, but like, it seems possible, seems doable. It seems like it would have been doable back then. I don't know if I can say that for sure, but like, they were doing some pretty crazy stuff with like input output tables where it required like stuff that we would never even think of doing right now without a computer. Mm -hmm. So like just the simple, Hey, it took everybody on average in this factory eight hours to make a potato or not a potato, a shoe. That'd be mm -hmm. a nice shoe, but like, you know, it may, perhaps possible. Sure. No, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not criticizing the prospect of the possibility of, um, planning an economy based on this unit oh, okay and like describing economy what you're just you're, you're, you're no you mean like you you make a really essential point or you describe you describe the system that they're proposing very well mm. we've only read the first four chapters so we'll get <laughs> onto it but what i understand to be the system that they're proposing you describe it very well i just mean like you're describing a system where they are using this unit of oh, measurement sure. a unit of accounting whereas like the soviet union was trying to do it without that right sure, sure, like sure, yeah. yeah yeah if if every if, if every if every um if every workplace that produces a certain type of thing just decides or says how long it takes them to produce one unit of that thing and then you just compare all the workplaces that are making all of those things then there you have it like the there's the socially necessary amount of labor time that has to go into producing a thing kind of thing mm. um mm. Yeah, the Soviet model definitely led to a lot of screwy bookkeeping of like, yeah, we made a thousand of these mm. <laughs> type of thing. Or like, oh my God, we can't make any more than selling it on the black market. Here, there's a fail safe where it's like, what would motivate you to lie about how long it took you to do something? And we should also say, uh, I don't think I was very clear. It isn't how long it takes you to make a product. I had a bit of a meltdown yesterday. Uh, texting Dan about a pizza is going to be the most expensive thing on the planet because of the time it takes to grow tomatoes and they get the cheese and the cow and everything. But no, it's the it's just the labor time that goes into making this thing. So you're right. Like the the time it takes to grow a tomato is a long time, but the time the labor time that goes into making these tomatoes, especially with modern tomato engineering, isn't much at all. <laughs> you know, it's like I trim that off. Okay, was that a second? You know what I mean? So yeah. Anyway, and I mean, you you made the very fair point, and we should we should we should circle back around to this that like, um, this is very close to what capitalism does. It is right, yeah. like so, like something that contains a lot of parts, but is actually quite cheap in our contemporary economy, is still going to be relatively cheap when measured in labor hours, right? Like, mm. um, like a pizza is not going to cost you like hundreds of hours of. <laughs> 
<laughs> of labor time just because it features a lot of different component parts kind of thing mm. um <laughs> coming but... as i'm foiled by a pizza yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. facts and logic <laughs> um so how far have we gotten? Well, let me let me just go back real quick, just because I, you made a really great point about commodity fetishism, which is I think we need to highlight too that like when you organize things based around the socially uh, average working hour instead of the individual working hour, like a wage labor does, it does get rid of commodity fetishism. And what that does to the individual is when you're in a quote unquote shop under this mode of communism, that like you know exactly what went in to making that T-shirt because it's priced at not only something you understand, but at the socially average working hour that, okay, here's what all of society put into making this shirt. Now, you know, you know, if you worked that much, sure, you go ahead. So I, yeah, I just wanted to focus on that just real quickly, just to say yeah, that then, that's a big point. Then you know how much of your work is going exactly. into buying every, any one of these things. There's nothing veiled. Yeah. 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 Your, your, an hour of your labor is directly comparable with an hour of anybody else's work across the entirety of this socially the social mode of production kind of thing mm, yeah um, which is why you can't base it on concrete labor your labor because it's like wow this guy look at him he's a savant at making pizzas he makes so many more pizzas than me i do my hardest and i do my best i can still only make half as many pizzas as this guy it's to average out across society so you're not getting screwed because you're not a pizza savant you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> which is literally what happens now all i'm saying that's what wage labor is it's uh -huh. measuring on the concrete uh -huh. individual working hours I'd, I'd, I'd rather go a different way and say that under communist every pizza maker would be a savant <laughs> okay oh wow that's what that's what marks meant when he said you'll be able to like exercise all of your humanity be a pizza maker in the morning and a pizza maker at night and a pizza maker in the whatever afternoon um all right uh where are we going next <laughs> away from pizzas i'm trying to work out whether what so like um chapter three in this book is like replete with um Example after example from the writings of Marx and Engels, whereby they're saying, basically, labor time accounting would be the unit of account in communism. And it would be absurd. To, well, they don't go so far as to say <laughs> it would be absurd to say anything other than that. But um, in this book, in this book, the group of international communists are presenting this as um, a serious sort of deviation from Marxist economics and Marxism that all other Marxists in the intervening period between Marx and Engels <laughs> and these guys have all fallen for. <laughs> Can I just say really quickly on that point, it feels like, you know, you always get the uh, Marx and Engels never talked about what communism would look like. It's only, you get the sense from their writing that it's because it's like obvious, like whenever they reference an, a communist society based around the socially average working hour, they're like, what else, what other conclusion would you have taken from what we're talking about? You know what I mean? They're like, why do you think we're making this distinction between the concrete and the abstract? They're like, have you read us? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, it just seems obvious, like going from there. They're like, yes, it would be based around the socially average labor time. Anyway, I just think, I just think it's an interesting point. <laughs> it's all, I, I, from the, from reading this book, I sort of get the impression that one ought read Marx and Engels' economic writings as saying, here we are, we're describing the economic mode of production of capitalism. Um, but the critique contains a kind of like, here are all the ways that capitalism capitalism is making a series of minor or major flaws, and here's the sort of slight tweak that you might make, kind of thing. Mm. So like, um, 
Maybe I'll just try and read this. This is there's a very clunky um <laughs> there's a very clunky quote from Engels. And I don't know whether I'm gonna be able to get through it. And if I make any mistakes, I might just put it down to it being a very clunky quote rather the than translation. Ra- yeah, it's all the translation's <laughs> fault. I don't know. Um and hopefully after I've read it <laughs> um hopefully after I've read it out then I'll be able to rip some other stuff from it I don't know so, uh, society can simply calculate how many hours of labor are contained in a steam engine a bushel of wheat of the last harvest or a hundred uh, square yards of cloth of a certain quality it could basically he's describing a communist society here so like obviously communism can basically just work out the number the amount of labor hours in any particular product of anybody working in a communist society and therefore in a communist society the quote continues it could therefore never occur to it still to express the quantities of labor put into the product quantities it will then know directly in the and in their absolute amount in a third product in a measure which besides is only relative fluctuating inadequate through formerly unavoidable, uh, though formerly unavoidable, of unavailable for lack of a better one, rather than express them in their natural, adequate, and absolute measure, time. <laughs> I don't know if this made any sense. Um, <laughs> hence, on the assumption we made above, society will not assign value to products. Right. Okay. Maybe that can all stay in, or maybe it can go out. <laughs> Basically, the point that I want to try and make is to explain what might be what we something that we were having difficulty with initially was how does labor time, as it's been described in this quote, differ from value as it functions under capitalism? Mm. And basically, what what the point that's being made by Marx and Engels, as quoted by in this book, um, is that. Value, um, as we've learned from our small initial <laughs> dipping the toe forays into attempting to read capital, val- the value of a commodity under capitalism only finds its expression when you compare one commodity to a- another commodity. It's only as in a relationship between two commodities that value is revealed. Mm. And the the the... The true source of value for Marx and Engels is um, abstract labor, the amount of socially necessary labor time that's contained in a thing. But the the truth of that uh, initial origin, that starting point of value under capitalism is concealed and only appears as this mysterious quality of a commodity when it's compared to other commodities. Under this this proposed mode of production and under this sort of sketch of what socialism would look like, you wouldn't need to have value be this sort of mysterious emergent quality that was only glimpsed uh, and and was largely veiled from our eyes um, that only expe- only expressed itself in um, exchange and which appeared to be uh something unique to the commodity i.e appears in the form of commodity fetishism you wouldn't you would those things wouldn't continue because you would know specifically how much labor was in things Mm. so you wouldn't have to carry on with these sort of like 
capitalist mystifications. This is what I was trying to get at when I was saying that, like, the the the, the, the there might be a way to read Marx and Engels, which is like, here is all these capitalist mystifications. Like, the 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 basis of organizing an economy is kind oh, sure. of true, but capitalism can't go all the way. Capitalism can't go all the way because it's committed to a form of mode of production which is reliant on the exploitation of a certain class's um, labor. But if you can, if you can get over, if we can abolish, if we can remove um, certain core features of capitalism which holds it back, then you can have this unmystified. Um, mode of production i suppose you can you can you can get to what we have been describing in this whole process as like a a, a form of economy where things are priced with their true price and you know mm. the true value of the, the 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 what you're paying for things kind of thing mm. and, and it's, you, have it's the, you know the true value of your labor and you know the two price the new the true price in air quotes of the things that you're purchasing in air quotes again <laughs> And it is so simple, too. That's what almost pisses me off about this book, is that it's so simple. It's just you. all you have to do is swap the, the measure from the individual working hour to the socially average working hour, and all of these mystifications just disappear, mm -hmm. which is just like, whoa! <laughs> it's, it's so cool. Um, yeah, there... It, I'm, tr I'm trying to think. There's only like one other thing I want to get to, um, and that's something that's mentioned basically like the first page of the uh, foreword or whatever it is. Um, but is there anything else you want to say on the economic questions of all of this? Because I just kind of want to talk really quickly about um, this idea of like why don't quote-unquote Marxists use the socially average working hour as their basis? Why, are they, why do they mess around with it? Um, sure, yeah. I mean um... – I think we've touched on everything that we might have wanted to touch on. I'm a little bit worried that something we kind of missed out on was the jump from kind of like um, the 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 jump from the freedom of producers to the equality of producers. Kind of oh, thing. sure, yeah. Um, so basically, like their their um, this is willing all the way back to some extent to the fact the beginnings of their criticism that stems from the criticism of uh wage labor you kind of touched on this actually to say that like just to say that uh the workers need to be given the right to dispose of the products what they produce kind of thing they need to own and control uh what they produce um isn't to say that they should just have the freedom to dispose of it in whatever way they please <laughs> but Oh, I wish I could do a better job with this. I'm sort of like I mean, it would, that would almost just be impossible bit. too, because we have a social division of labor. It's like yeah, yeah, that's yeah. I insane, mean, it's, but it's, impossible. It's interesting. Yeah, it's good, right? Like one of the things, one of the, the distinctions that they focus on for at length that we haven't really touched upon is this idea that like um, capitalism was already socialized production. Like, I mean, this this is this is again the essence of commodity fetishism, right? Like. We don't we don't see it in our daily life. All we experience is our relationship to the world of commodities. But behind the commodities, there's a vast web of social connections between human beings. All the different people that have contributed all sorts of various types of labor to make it possible that mm -hmm. a certain thing is now in front of you in the shop. Um, people, 
the the economy and all the people who work in the economy are already connected socially. What we need to establish is um, a social regulation of that economy and a social regulation of both the productive process and um, to some extent the sort of distributive process, I suppose. Um, so this is basically just to say that, well, what 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 one could t because I mean society is already socially connected. One could, if one were a certain type of libertarian, or I suppose, or a certain type of anarchist, one might be inclined to say to read from this criticism of um, the vast majority of people's separation from um, ownership of means of production to just say that everybody should have their own piece of means of production mm. but the i mean the communist criticism of that the one that's expressed in this book is like we've moved beyond like small-scale production and it's nobody's intention to take us back to small-scale <laughs> production um the same way we can't go to sort of small-scale consumption of things but instead we need to have um socially sort of a, a sort of society-wide social regulation of these things. Yeah, this is the idea of having the rules. Yeah, 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 yeah. Having yeah. a unit of account. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I think we're going to get onto more of this in the later chapters of this book, and so maybe I would leave this now as a kind of like, the here is a bit of a big open space as to mm. what like what this would look like, I suppose. Yeah, talk about another open space as well is uh, uh, kind of decision making that I mean again first four chapters of the book yeah. hasn't been touched on at all but I am interested to see if it tackles it at all which I would imagine it probably doesn't because this book is called Fundamental Principles of Communist Production and Distribution not Fundamental Principles of Communist Organization and Societal Planning but um, how you would come together to be like we're gonna uh, build the world's biggest boat you know what I, mean? I don't know why I'd build a big boat but like you know there are certain things that uh, have global impacts, I suppose, and and you know you would have to have some sort of planning to to plan on those. One that comes to mind is climate change, um, and kind of like how that would be organized. I think we can kind of put that to bed though, because again, they might talk about it, they might not. We'll come to that later. Um, but I did just want to touch on really quickly in the foreword about by the actual original authors about how. Again, this question of why don't Marxists like this? Why don't Marxists realize that this is the goddamn thing? It's not just giving things to the state. As we said in our previous episode, socialism isn't just when the state does a thing. Um, and it just has – this could be – I like stood up when I first read this and I was just like fist pump like, yes, because I love this so much. So basically the question being posed is why don't Marxists and supposed communists – like the economic basis that they put forward of time of socially average labor hour. And they say, this explanation is very simple. <laughs> the intellectuals critical of capitalism do not like the alternative that has been presented. For the communist parties fighting the leading power, the idea is perfectly natural that the workers in the factories take over the power and hand it to the intellectual vanguard so that the latter can then organize society in the name of and for the good of the working class. The idea that the workers in the factories take power in order to control the relationship from producer to product themselves based on the calculation of working hours without the need for privileged leadership does not fit in with their idea of essentially structured economic and administrative apparatus. But also, the libertarian communists do not like the economic basis of the free association of free and equal people, as shown by Marx and Engels. They want to live in a communist society and at the same time be free from it. And that just rocks. I just love that. <laughs> slamming the intellectuals, slamming the libertarian communists. It just rocks. It's just so good. 
Um, we live in a society. Yeah. We do indeed live in a society, <laughs> and I don't want to be free from it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know which bit I liked more: them hassling the intellectuals or hassling the libertarian communists. I think hassling the intellectuals. Yeah, I think that's just what I'm going to say. I think that was good. Um, only again, only read the first eighty some odd pages. Pick this book up. <laughs> that's all I'll say. And I don't have any more, any, any more in the book. The book's good. That's what I'll say. <laughs> it's a nice looking book. It looked good on your shelf. Yeah. If you're one of those people that color coordinates your books, <laughs> it's uh, it's a nice white with some red mm. font. Mm. Um, is that Daddy Day? Daddy Day. Excuse me. That's, that's <laughs> <No. the font. laughs> it's like, what the hell? <laughs> Very clever. Could be, honestly. Wow, that'd be good. Um, you know, you know, Dan, I'm... Uh, I don't know if you noticed. I appreciate you not saying anything, but I am wearing Crocs at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if I actually should say this on air. New in what sense? I, I was walking over to the allotment and You're I saw a, a big guy. skip. <laughs> <laughs> for our American oh, I'm totally listeners, on board with this. <laughs> for our American listeners, a skip is a dumpster. All right. And I think someone was moving, or they're getting evicted, or they're doing construction. There was a bunch of really good stuff in there, and I saw that sitting on top there was a pair of Crocs. And I kept walking, and then I stopped, and I was like, those look like they'd fit me. <laughs> so I went back, got them, washed them up, and I got a new pair of black Crocs. It's like, they've like never been worn. Someone was throwing them out. They're a one size too small, though, so I have to wear them open back. But, I'm, you know, I can vibe with that. <laughs> you were okay cool. being that guy. <laughs> I could be that guy. Yeah, I flat just, down. I, I just thought that you didn't know how Crocs worked. <laughs> no, Dan, I know how Crocs oh, okay. work. Come on okay, now. Okay. Um, yes. Well, I had noticed. Okay. It hadn't been a deliberate intention on my part not to comment because I just assumed (laughs) I'd probably seen you wearing them before. Yeah. They're good. Uh I will say. Uh Skips, folks. There's a lot of really good stuff. There was like a big bird bath and I was like, oh, I could maybe even like collect water in there, like almost like a pond. Uh But it was under uh, 50 other pairs of Crocs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm going to go looking for some Crocs in a bit then. Yeah, I haven't told anybody that that's where I got them, but what are you going to do? Well, I, I haven't gotten, I haven't gotten just, the, just me and the listeners. Just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I haven't gotten any of the buttons that you put in the holes yet. Um, I've been, <laughs> I've been wearing them a lot and I've had the possibility of like getting a croc tan, which is the like circles on your foot. Uh-huh. I think I'd wear that with pride. Not a sandal tan, but a croc tan. All right. Why not? Oh, I shouldn't have talked about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's definitely staying in. All right, good. Are we done? I, I don't know. I feel done. like there was loads of stuff, but it's such it's such a good book, guys. It's such it a good is. book, and it is so well. It's just it's easily accessible. I think you just got to get over the hump of understanding what they mean, which they honestly do a good job of explaining. But what they mean by the socially average working hour. So maybe read some marks before you read this. But honestly, you kind of don't really need to. You just it's good. That's all I'll say. Um. And yeah, the rest of the book, I suppose, is them going through a couple more ideologies and being like, idiots, wrong, you fools. Um, and then kind of getting a little bit more into... There's a, there's a chapter actually on agriculture that I'm looking forward to reading. Um, that's, that, that's that on that. But I'm yeah, abolition of the market, expansion of production. That'll be interesting. How do we expand production? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, looking forward to it. And we will finish this soon. Um, so yeah. I think that's all to say on it. Excellent. We, he, can, we can correct any glaring errors uh, in future episodes. Oh, they were saying base it on concrete labor. Oh, no. no. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, 
Anything, anything else, Dan? Anything just in life? Anything else? Any good skip holes? <laughs> Have I pulled anything out of skips? I feel like I did inspect a skip recently, but I don't think... Mm. I've not I've not done any good I've not got any good 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 stuff out of a skip in There's a while. There's a lot of crappy ones around. Yeah. Just like insulation and like Yeah, 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 yeah. I've no use for a lot of foam insulation, I don't think. <laughs> um I might I might borrow you on uh, if you're free, that is, on a Saturday because there's a allotment plot that someone's abandoned and there's a bunch of stuff there that they need to clean up. There's a lot of work that they need to do to clean it up to get ready for the next person, but there's a lot of stuff for the guy who's just like if you help, you can just have this stuff. Uh-huh. I, I went to, uh, God damn it, I went to B&Q to get some netting to keep those pigeons off of the damn Brussels sprouts and to get a saw. And then I went over to the allotment and the guy was like, hey, come look at this. If there's anything you want. And there was netting and a saw. And I was just like, right. It's <laughs> like, great. Glad I walked all the way to B&Q. Whatever. I mean, I thought you just might dismantle your fox protection and use some of that netting to cover the... No. Uh, yeah, but I mean, th- then what are you going to do? <laughs> then what are you going to It's the foxes or the pigeons. Um <laughs> Both of which seem to be working in tandem to get like <laughs> some sort of fantastic Mr. Fox style scenario. Um, yeah, all right. I don't know. I yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> I mean, call, call the quits on this. Calling it quits. This book rocks. Um, and yes, we don't need to plug it anymore, but just to plug it one more time. Go watch your interview with Thelma. Thelma rocks. Yep. Um, Thanks so much to her. Yeah. It's all good fun. Yeah. And on a low energy app. <laughs> and on an app. My name's been Jack. My this has been Auxiliary State. Thanks, Thanks for listening to the podcast. <laughs>Music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time. Whoa.